Section 69 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies, an Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases, by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bamba. Suicide Part One. In further illustration of the varied forms of fraudulent intent under consideration, we have now to remind our readers that the annals of criminal jurisprudence prove that desperate men sometimes have recourse to suicide. The game of life turns against them until they become reckless of their own fate, and only solicitous of worldly provision for their immediate kindred. The Yorkshire squire, of whom Mr. Francis gives such a graphic account, destroyed his life to dupe the gamesters, who had ruined him, and who had besides heavily insured him to cover the losses otherwise unprovided for. To complete the revenge by the forfeiture of the policies, the companies were properly notified. But such a motive is altogether exceptional. The invariable purpose in self-murder is to die, not that others may lose, but that others may win. The class of suicides of which the present chapter furnishes some notable instances, having no further interest in individual existence, exhibit both willingness and eagerness to impose upon the companies the burden of the support of those they leave behind. They adopt every available method of concealment of purpose, but at the same time they know full well that though in the application of circumstantial evidence to the proof of criminal responsibility, the motive may be detected. Their heirs will obtain the sympathy of impressible but unreasoning juries, and profit by the fraud. Of late years this subject has engaged the attention of some of the ablest underwriters of the country. Suicide has become so common, says President Batterson, that hardly a day passes in which we cannot find the melancholy fact reported in some of the papers, as an item of news accompanied by the cheerful intelligence that the deceased had left his family well provided with policies of life insurance. Concerning the fact that the suicide can obtain for himself no pecuniary or other advantage by hastening his own death, it becomes most important to consider the motives which induce him to commit the deed. When misfortunes and trouble, either present or prospective, have rendered the cares of life heavy and wearisome, Suicide is the first remedy suggested by a weak and cowardly mind. The hope of escaping personal responsibility, or some impending pecuniary disaster, or the penalty of lesser crimes, and at the same time of making provision for those who would be destitute and dependent upon him, are the most powerful motives to self-destruction. The most convenient means of satisfying the motive, and one always at hand, is found in a policy of life insurance. The wrong done both to the insurers and insured is trifling in comparison to the greater wrong to society and its effect upon public morals. The insurance of life in such cases is no compensation or endowment given upon the loss of it, but a positive temptation to throw it away. It breaks down utterly the one chief argument of self-conservation, viz. the argument of family want and protection turning it directly round to make it an argument of self-destruction for the family benefit. It loosens in this manner, too, the bonds of reason just now reeling. It may be off its throne, 
making desperation more desperate, distraction more distracted, bad impulse wider and more uncontrollable, and vice itself a more overmastering torment. And then, when court triers come after, practicing their loose trivialities in the name of justice, and covering over the tremendous fraud of self-murder by figments of insanity, too thin to be more than lying pretexts, anyone can see that the sanctity of life must be giving way with frightful rapidity. The only remedy is in removing the motive, and we firmly believe that if some legislative power could prevent the writing of any life policy which recognizes suicide as a legitimate claim upon the insurers, it would very soon cease to be regarded as a respectable or desirable method of providing for one's family. The various expedients resorted to by suicides to accomplish their purpose show in an interesting manner with what consummate skill they not only measure the effects of life-destroying materials, but so destroy them as to furnish evidence of insanity in some cases, of accident or of homicide in others and in nearly all can be found some carefully devised plan for concealing the evidence which would prove the intention and betray the motive. A Pennsylvania Fellow de say. One of the earliest cases of deliberate suicide in the United States for the evident purpose of defrauding a life insurance company is that of William Callender of York, Pennsylvania. Callender rode on horseback to Harrisburg, where on the 26th of March, 1851, he obtained a policy of insurance on his life in the sum of $5,000 from the Keystone Mutual Life and Health Insurance Company of Harrisburg. He started home the same afternoon, was taken sick on the way, and obliged to dismount from his horse at a toll house on the turnpike, where he died during the ensuing night. The policy was conditioned to be void if the assured died by his own hand, and the company being in possession of proof that Callender died from the self-administration of arsenic, with the deliberate purpose of terminating his existence while in full possession of his mental faculties, declined to make payment. The administrator of Callender's estate, having brought suit, it was proved by the defendant that at eight o'clock on the morning of the 26th, Callender purchased arsenic at the drug store of one Martin Lutz, that after effecting the insurance, he went to a restaurant called for oysters and after sprinkling the arsenic over the oysters, ate them, that the arsenic was detected in the stomach by post-mortem chemical analysis. And, moreover, it was in evidence that Callender had made declarations of an intention to commit suicide. One of the prominent points in the defense was that at the time of applying for insurance, the applicant was guilty of misrepresentation in matters material to the risk. He stated, for instance, that he was a farmer by occupation, whereas it was shown on the trial that he had not been a farmer for many years, but was habitually and diligently engaged in a business perilous to life, that of catching fugitive slaves. It was proved that he had lately been to Wilkes-Barre and other places in pursuit of Negroes, and that only a few days before his death he had been in Hagerstown, Maryland, to bargain for the apprehension of fugitives. But proofs of misrepresentation were hardly needed to strengthen the defendant's cause. The rule of the court that suicide, according to the expressed terms and conditions of the policy, avoided the contract, was all-sufficient, and the company was sustained accordingly. Upon approval, the decision of the lower court was affirmed, and the Supreme Court added that the court below was, 
very plainly right in charging that if no such condition had been inserted in the policy a man who commits suicide is guilty of such a fraud upon the insurers of his life that his representatives cannot recover for that reason alone end of section sixty nine